Welcome to the Good Stuff Family Podcast. I'm Don Kendrick, and I am so glad you're here. This is the place you're going to find genuine inspiration in authentic, vulnerable stories that are distinctly different than anything you'll see in mainstream media. The story that binds all of these together, it's my own testimony. Candid, transparent story of my own journey. Holy shift, grit, grind, divine design. Stories from a former news reporter with a renewed purpose. Welcome to the family. Good morning, Good Stuff family. Welcome to the best part of waking up is waking up. That's what we say. That's what we believe. That if we have the gift of another day before us, that it is in fact a good day to take the next best step. So this is why I'm starting today uh, a series that I'm going to be calling In Their Own Words, because I've been reading so many good books lately that are classic quintessential good stuff stories, overcomer type stories, uh, where they're able to see the good in others and be the good for them, but through sometimes unthinkable challenges, things they would not have scripted and could not have scripted. And a perfect case in point is uh, my new friend, Colleen Murphy. She wrote Murphy's Don't Quit. And it is the story of um, the journey through her daughter, Lauren's traumatic brain injury. And I, I'm having her on today to actually read through it because I couldn't read through fast enough myself and their notes all through it. And I think, um, I know, that y'all will be inspired. And so I'm hoping that if you are, you'll click subscribe on our YouTube page, The Good Stuff Family uh, with Don Kendrick or thegoodstufffamily.com and share because that's what this is all about. Our stories, his glory, our stories to uplift and encourage other people. So again, Murphy's Don't Quit. And I'm going to bring in without any further ado, ado. Good morning, sunshine. Good morning. Colleen Murphy, the author of Murphy's Don't Quit. So uh, I wonder if you could just set us up to that day in April when uh, you were in your car, much like maybe a, a lot of people who are listening right now, in their car, common, ordinary day, and, and give us a window, if you would, before we start reading this um, sure. into that day that kind of changed your whole world. Sure. Typical um, Friday afternoon. I was shooting out of work a little bit early to go to um, one of my daughter's high school soccer games, and I received a call from a Los Angeles detective, um, and my daughter, Lauren, who lived in New York at the time but was on a business trip in Los Angeles, um, had been hit by a car while out on a morning run. And her injuries were pretty severe. And at the time of the phone call, we had no idea if she would still be alive by the time we arrived in LA. You know, we got on the quickest plane that we could. And, you know, that is chapter two of my life. You know, not many people can, you know, say there was one defining day. Um, I'm one of the unlucky ones that, you know, life was easy up until April 19th, 2013. And then, you know, we just went on a totally different path. And it's chapter two, the new normal. That's, that's a perfect setup. And I'll just show, again, if you're listening in podcast mode, you can go to our YouTube page and you can see some of the visuals uh, that we're showing here. But so this is, this is Lauren at a wedding, not, not, not long before her accident, correct? Correct. Yes. So I want to give a perspective check here. Okay. Cause as we all, 
um, pledge to live today in gratitude. Um, that was Lauren. And then the next time, um, you know, when you, after you got that call, when you went to LA, this is how you walked into that room. You described that walk down the hallway as being like walking in cement mm -hmm. to get there. Yeah, for sure. Um, but the story does not end here. Mm -hmm. Spoiler alert, Lauren <laughs> is, oh Lord, the last time we did the interview, she inspired me so much. She was so kind at the end about uplifting me. And I said, yeah. thank goodness, like God so was not done with her. And he mm -hmm. was, uh, he was just setting you up to be such an inspiration as well. Uh, I feel like, okay, so here, spoiler alert, this, this is, um, that was before, right before you had gone to visit her in New York, correct? Yeah, that was July of 2012. Yeah. Yes. And now this, these are the two of you on a speaking circuit now, mm -hmm. spreading this message of, of, if you had to pick a word, would it be hope? Yeah, for sure. A perseverance um, would probably be the biggest, but yeah, hope for the hopeless, for sure. Mm, mm. Yeah, because the doctor said, don't get your hopes up. Yeah. They just had to be realistic with you. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, but you knew better. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You knew better. You, It's a mama. It's a mama's, um, but it wasn't easy. So that's yeah. where we begin. That's where we begin. If you're just joining us, we're, we're doing um, a new se series we're going to start uh, called In Their Words. And I'm going to have Colleen Murphy's been kind enough to say that she would you would actually read. Maybe we'll get one chapter or two. I don't know. But we'll continue on Friday mornings um, at 8 Central, actually, and 9 Eastern is when we'll continue. But I wanted to introduce her this morning on our Best Part of Waking Up series. So would you mind to get us started with the call that sure. you've already set up? Okay. All right. I vaguely remember boarding the plane. The little boy seated behind me was bursting with joy over his upcoming visit to Disneyland. The energy floating around my row was vastly different from what I was experiencing. I spent the duration of the flight ineffectively trying to hold back the flood of tears covering my grief-stricken face. When I had woken that morning, I had no idea I would be spending my Friday night on a crowded flight, paralyzed with fear. I passed the time by begging God to put me out of my misery. I actually preferred dying in a fiery plane crash to landing safely, driving to Cedar sinai Hospital, and watching one of my children die. St. Louis, Missouri, on Friday, April 19th, 2013 was dark and dreary. I was thrilled to reach the end of a successful work week. Spring was nowhere in sight. The sun was hiding yet again, as it had been for all of April. I recently gave myself a WebMD a diagnosis of seasonal affective disorder. My guess is that doctors came up with this ailment for people like me just looking for a good excuse to be a royal witch. The grass was brown, the trees still bare, the air was damp and cold this 43-year-old slightly wrinkled sun worshiper had been in a bad mood for quite a while. Earlier in the week, I optimistically brought all my spring summer clothes out of storage in the hopes that it might help the weather change course. I also prayed that the summer clothes still fit as that was becoming an issue with each passing year. My metabolism came to a screeching halt around my 40th birthday, yay me. Ignoring all the anticipated yet still too thin spring dresses in my closet that morning, I picked yet another dull winter outfit, gray dress pants, a little tight in the waist, 
and a crust toothpaste colored long sleeve top. It matched the mood of the day. At least I got to wear my favorite comfy black flats from Target. I had worn them so often that there were visible holes in the soles of both shoes. I was always careful in business meetings not to cross my legs in case someone would notice their condition. I knew I would have to throw them away eventually, but today was not the day. I had no clue I would be wearing that ugly outfit for the next five days. My workday ended a little early, so I would have time to watch my daughter Kelsey's high school soccer game. Before merging onto the highway, I clicked on a Facebook video advertising an upcoming Rick Springfield fans getaway at Club Med. Obviously, I shouldn't have been paying any attention to the video while driving, but when it came to my teenage crush, I tended to break all the rules. As a kid, I used all of my babysitting earnings to buy Tiger Beat magazines featuring photos of Rick. My childhood bedroom was decorated in wall-to-wall -wall Rick. He was my first boyfriend, technically my first imaginary boyfriend. The obsession was so strong that I can't reflect on my childhood without thinking of Rick. I had an awesome imagination, or I was just a raving lunatic, maybe a combination of both. Rick was a terrible kisser. Yes, I never actually kissed him, but I knew without a doubt that his poster version of himself was lousy. A call came through interrupting my cell phone video. The caller ID read, private number. Looking back, I wish I would have thrown my phone out the window instead. Not answering the phone would have changed, wouldn't have changed the events of the day, but in my head, everything bad in my life can be directly linked to that dreadful call. Before the call, life was good. My marriage was strong. My kids, all seven of them, were growing up to be amazing, kind, and loving people. I had a job that I loved after spending almost 20 years as a stay-at-home mom. Financially, we were finally in a place where paying bills wasn't a constant struggle. Dealing with moody kids, an occasional grumpy husband, Carpools, girl drama, I have six daughters, and boy drama, I have only one son yet often feels like six, was what made life seem hard. Our biggest problem in life was that our dog Seamus peed on anything and everything unless he was outside. Outdoors, he didn't know what to do. He couldn't find a chair or a couch to pee on. We had to put him in doggy diapers and his veterinarian prescribed Prozac. I was patiently waiting for Seamus's antidepressant to take effect. Hello, I said to the mystery caller. The voice on the other end identified himself as a Los Angeles detective. My heart intuitively sank. He then asked how I was related to Lauren Murphy. I nervously told him that I was her mother. It's amazing how many scenarios flew through my head. Is she in jail? Is she too busy to call me herself? Was she the victim of a crime? I could not for the life of me figure out why a detective was calling me. Lauren lived in New York City. She moved there after a bad breakup. She was gutsy and knew exactly what she wanted and how to get it. I missed having her in St. Louis, but loved to visit her in New York. I was proud of her independence and the life she was creating for herself. She recently landed an exciting new job and was currently on a business trip in Los Angeles. In fact, I had talked to her early that morning. It was the week after the Boston Marathon bombing. Police were closing in on a suspect and the city of Boston was on lockdown. Lauren's new boyfriend was originally from Boston. I called her to ask if his family had been affected by the police search. I forgot about the two hour time difference and woke her up. We chatted for a while until I lost service pulling into a parking garage. Once I identified myself as Lauren's mother, the detective informed me that Lauren had been involved in an accident. She was hit by a car while out running. My head started spinning, thoughts going too fast for my brain to comprehend. Why didn't she call me? I thought. She is probably annoyed that it will put a damper in her marathon training. 
She had been accepted into the New York City Marathon and was super excited. Within two seconds, I snapped out of it, realizing how serious this must be. My palms on the steering wheel were sweating and my heart seemed to be beating right out of my chest. Does she have head trauma? I asked the detective. No, he replied, but he believes she might have some internal injuries. He offered the phone number of a person at the hospital that could give me more information. I needed to pull over to write the information down. I'd already passed three exits. I could not figure out how to get off the stupid highway. I was so distraught, I couldn't even function. This extra time allowed more awkward chit, awkward chit chat while panic settled in. Take your time, the detective said. It's okay, go slow. I can wait, be safe. Finally, I found an exit and pulled into a random parking lot. I jotted down the phone number and thanked the patient detective for the information. My life had just gone into a tailspin, but at least I still had good manners. When I hung up, the Rick Springfield video resumed playing as if my life hadn't been shattered. I was so annoyed how empty and shallow I felt seeing that video. Five minutes ago, I had been feeling sorry for myself because I couldn't be a groupie due to work and family commitments. I wish that still mattered. What a difference five minutes can make. I tried to call my husband Dave, but he didn't answer. I did not leave a message. I said a quick Hail Mary and punched in the number for the hospital social worker. She answered on the first ring. After identifying myself, the first thing I asked was, does she have head trauma? Looking back, it's crazy how I already knew the truth. Even though the detective had just assured me that she didn't. I'm sorry, the social worker responded. Yes, she has severe head trauma. I choked back tears as I asked if Lauren was going to die. If you're asking me if you need to come, the answer is yes. I knew by her tone that I had to get to my girl as fast as I could. Lauren had been a Jane Doe for several hours before they were able to identify her. I thought of my baby lying there fighting for her life, a face without a name. Her name in the hospital system was Trauma Foxtrot 5395. Did the, keep, did the people caring for her know how loved Trauma Foxtrot was and how much we all desperately needed her to live? I let the social worker know we would be on the first plane we could find. I called Dave back and thankfully this time he answered. After tearfully explaining what happened, I asked him to get us on the quickest flight out of Lambert Airport. I had about a 45 minute drive home. Luckily, my ability to take charge switched to autopilot. I had several more important calls to make to be sure all of the kids and closest family members were notified. With such a large family, I needed to reach a few key people and delegate the daunting task of letting others know. After first trying to reach my oldest daughter, Sam, I called the next oldest after Lauren. At 21, Erin was away at school in Mobile, Alabama. She was just finishing her shift at nursing clinicals when she answered my call. Next, I called my mom, who lives with us, to let her know and ask her to tell Ryan and Maggie, my two youngest kids. Maggie had a slumber party that night for a classmate. As usual, I hadn't even bought the gift. Was I seriously chastising my parenting and thinking about birthday gifts? With the soccer game, I knew that Kelsey was the only daughter I wouldn't be able to reach before we left for the airport. I reached my friend Jill, whose daughter was Kelsey's best friend and played on the same soccer team. I knew Jill was the right call to make as someone who would gently deliver the news. Otherwise, I was afraid Kelsey would see something on Facebook or Twitter before someone could reach her. Erin was ultimately able to reach Sam, as well as her sister Shannon, who was also away at college. I hated that I wasn't able to sit each one of my children down and explain to them what happened in person. There just wasn't any time. I was desperate to get to LA as quickly as possible. 
Driving home, I wasn't even sure how I kept my car between the white lines. I guess it was from all the practice I had watching Rick Springfield videos instead of the road. Lauren's brain surgeon, Dr. Chen, called as I was merging onto the final highway that leads to our home. He let me know that he had been monitoring Lauren all day. They had drilled holes in her skull, skull in the ER to try and alleviate the pressure. Did he just tell me he drilled holes in Lauren's head? The trauma was so severe that they needed to do more for Lauren to stand his chance at survival. I knew it was bad and I was absolutely terrified. The plan was to take her back to surgery and remove a portion of her skull. This would give her brain room to swell. Fun fact, they don't need consent in severe cases when the family can't be reached. There's a policy in place where two doctors can sign off on the surgery as emergent and necessary. It was just a bonus that the police had been able to identify her before surgery. Dr. Chen carefully explained things to me, his voice kind and compassionate. I have no idea what I said to him or how I reacted. The events of the previous 15 or 20 minutes were still part of a world that I was desperately hoping wasn't real. Somehow I made it home in one piece and had about an hour before we had to leave for the airport. Inside my house, I tried to keep a brave face. Ryan and Maggie, Ryan and Maggie were only 13 and 11. I didn't want to scare them. I began packing clothes, though I had no clue how long I would be gone, what I would need, or if Lauren would be alive when I got there. I sat at our kitchen table with my head in my hands, sobbing. There was nothing else I could do. I felt so helpless. I could barely even hold my head up. My little Maggie walked up to me and gave me a hug. Her face looked so sad. I was the strong one who really got upset. Sure, I was often screaming like a banshee over messy rooms, but crying wasn't in my wheelhouse. Raging lunatic? Yes. Emotional cripple? No. Regrettably, I completely crumbled. I will never forget the look on Maggie's face. I felt as if I had failed her on so many levels. Mothers are supposed to shield their children from pain, not add to it. Even in times of desperation, a mother's guilt still rears its ugly head. The ride to the airport was tense, the silence deafening, with the exception of my soft whimpering in the back seat. Rarely am I ever in a car without sound. The radio, at least, is always playing in the background. But today wasn't a day for music, and there were no words that could have made any of us feel better. So we sat in silence. I glanced at the many texts coming through, yet I couldn't even respond or fully grasp what was happening. Why my family? I don't remember checking our luggage at the airport, getting our boarding passes, or going through security. I do remember sitting on an uncomfortable plastic chair, anxiously waiting to board the plane, my face slick with a torrential downpour of never-ending salty tears. Dave was fielding phone calls from friends and family as I sat in a nearly catatonic trance. A call from Dr. Chen went straight to voicemail. Seeing the missed call, I found a quiet spot against a wall in between two digital signs to listen to the voicemail. Dr. Chen's message was vague. Lauren made it through surgery, and he left a number to call for further details. I called the number, hoping to reach Lauren's surgeon. Instead, I was connected to her ICU nurse, John, who had been assigned to Lauren after surgery. He had a soft and sincere voice. I liked him immediately. He came across as the kind of caring man you would want on your team. John had the unlikely unlucky task of conveying the not so great news on behalf of Dr. Chen. He started with the positive fact that Lauren's vitals were good. Then the list of bad news seemed to go on forever. Lauren was in a coma, receiving blood transfusions, and her brain was continuing to swell. 
the swelling was the area of greatest concern and was expected to get worse over the next three to four days. Lauren had been brought to the neuro ICU and was being monitored closely. John also reported that instead of taking a small section of her skull behind her ear as planned, they had to remove a rather large section on the left side of her skull. The original plan was to surgically implant the skull piece into her stomach so it would remain nourished, sterile, and healthy for reattachment later. But because of multiple fractures, they were unable to save the removed piece of skull. It was a problem that would need to be addressed at a later date. Did he just say that she's missing part of her skull and they aren't able to replace it later? My head was spinning again as I took in all the information. I thought to myself, why in the world didn't I bring a pen and paper with me before I called the hospital? I'm not sure what I was expecting. I guess something along the lines of surgery went well, she's resting comfortably, or better yet, I'm sorry, Mrs. Murphy, there's been some crazy mix-up. Trauma Foxtrot 5395 belongs to someone else. Your daughter is at her scheduled work event, killing it, per usual. Instead, I heard the worst possible news ever. Her damage was so intensive, they had to perform a lobectomy on her left temporal lobe. I had no idea what that even meant, but I could tell by his tone it didn't mean anything good. I asked for clarity, and John let out an audible sigh. I knew I was going to hear something terrible. John explained that a lobectomy is when a portion of the brain is removed. I was so confused. I had never heard of someone missing a part of their brain. I asked Nurse John if she would ever be able to live a normal life. After a longer than normal pause, he responded, I don't know. I wanted to die right that second. I seriously did not want to be amongst the living and breathing. My daughter was in trouble and there wasn't a darn thing I could do about it. I hung up the phone and all I wanted to do was lie in the fetal position in the middle of Lambert Airport. Instead, I pulled myself together, went back over to our seats and let Dave know the grim update. The word grief took on a whole new meaning. How could I fix this? I was her mother. Somehow this had to be my fault. I begged and pleaded with God. Was I being punished for not being a good enough person? I tried to be a good Catholic. I went to mass every Sunday, put all my kids through Catholic school, even when we couldn't afford it, raised all my kids to know God and to love Jesus. Why was this happening? Obviously, I wasn't good enough, wasn't mother enough, wasn't wife enough, wasn't Christian enough. I had to be punished. Once on the plane, I was full of anxiety. We had to fly to Chicago first, a short layover before we headed to LAX. Once we were at Midway Airport in Chicago, I wanted to make sure my phone was fully charged in case the hospital tried to call again. In the terminal, I found a small cramped charging station. I was standing shoulder to shoulder amongst half a dozen other travelers charging their phones or tablets when my phone rang. It was another private number. I didn't have much luck with the last private number, yet I didn't have much to lose, so I answered. On the other end was Father Joe, my parish priest. Someone must have called him after hearing about the accident. I tearfully explained all from the beginning. By the time I got to the part where they removed part of Lauren's brain, my sobs were becoming louder and louder. I noticed the people standing closest to me awkwardly trying to avoid eye contact. They couldn't help but overhear my whole conversation. Father Joe asked if we could pray together, and of course I obliged. I can't recollect if we prayed in Our Father or Hail Mary or both, but I do remember feeling comfort in his words and assurance that he would continue to pray for us. I'm pretty sure if my neighbors at the phone charging station could have hightailed it out of there without coming across as rude, they would have run 
run away as if the building was on fire. Soon after we boarded the plane, soon after we boarded the plane, buying tickets a few hours before takeoff equals C group and back of the plane. We ended up in the second to last row. The final row behind us sat a mother and her two kids. The dad was in the window seat in our row. The kids were headed to Disneyland in the morning and could barely control their excitement. Their little boy seemed to be around four years old and was completely over the moon. He kept loudly talking to his dad who was to my left. Desperate for hospital updates, I had brought my laptop and was connected to Wi-Fi. I had given Nurse John verbal permission to talk to Sam on our behalf with any updates on Lauren's condition. Sam was at home taking care of her siblings and calling the hospital every hour on the hour. She e emailed me any news she could get her hands on. The closer we came to land, the sicker I felt. I was so scared. Up until this point, I could pretend this was all part of a bad dream. Once I got to the hospital, there would be no turning back, no second guessing what had really happened. I can only assume the stranger next to me was cursing himself due, his, due to his stellar seat selection skills. The blubbery mess to his right was most likely not what he bargained for. I had yet to perform the silent cry. We arrived at LA a little after midnight, 2 a.m. St. Louis time, and the airport was largely deserted. Luckily for me, Dave had been to LX re LAX recently and knew his way around. I don't think I had the mental capacity to find the baggage claim area, regardless of the many overhead signs leading the way. We collected our bags and then headed toward rental cars. Dave traveled often for work and was part of the reward club. Re reward members were offered pick of the aisle. Unfortunately, the only car left in the aisle after midnight was a two-door Dodge Challenger. So off we went to the hospital in a sports car, looking like we were in the middle of a midlife crisis versus a catastrophic real-life crisis. There was more silence as Google Maps directed us towards Cedar sinai Fear had taken hold and wasn't letting go. 30 minutes later, we arrived at the hospital complex with no clue where to go. Luckily, the charge nurse had asked us to call when we arrived and she would come down and meet us. We walked into the lobby attached to the garage and there wasn't a person in sight. I called the charge nurse to let her know we were in the lobby. Her voice was full of warmth and I knew that she was another person that I would grow to love. A few minutes later, she called back looking for us. And after a few questions, we learned we were in the wrong lobby. We stood in a new building that hadn't even opened yet, hence the ghost town. She asked me to stay put as we both agreed it would be easier for her to come to us. 10 minutes later, I spotted a woman in scrubs holding a bulky phone headed our way. I took in her warm, inviting smile and then noticed her unusual hairstyle. As a farmer, former hairstylist, I had never seen anything like it. Hairstyles in the Midwest were obviously way different than hairstyles on the West Coast. She sported an unusually tall afro. To say it was unique was a huge understatement. It looked as if she woke up every morning, slapped on some product, and designed her hairstyle to mim mimic an abstract sculpture, highlighting several triangular-shaped sections. I thought to myself, Dorothy, you aren't in Kansas anymore, or in my case, Missouri. We continued awkward chit-chat. It was becoming a skill as we worked our way through the huge hospital complex. There are excellent hospitals in St. Louis. One of them covers several city blocks, but this was different. The complex was massive. We would have never found our way alone. I was very thankful she came down to get us. She mentioned that we were headed to the Sepperstein Critical Care Tower, and I let that name sink in a bit. It sounded almost Disney-like, only Lauren wasn't a captive Rapunzel, and I 
wasn't a handsome prince coming to rescue her. This tower was for critical patients. I hated that tower before we even arrived. We eventually found ourselves standing in the lobby of Saperstein Critical Care Tower. In the corner of the room, a man sat behind a computer at a little desk. I found it odd that they had an employee sitting there after midnight. He looked at us kind of strange, I guess because of the hour or maybe the unique hairstyle. The nurse let him know that we were the parents of Trauma Foxtrot and he nodded in a sympathetic way. I wanted to curl up in a ball and die. Her name is not Trauma Foxtrot. It is Lauren Murphy, born October 5th, 1987 at 4.11 a.m. Seven pounds, eight ounces, 22 inches long, arriving after 22 hours of labor. When Lauren was born, she had an Abgar score of three. All new babies receive an Abgar score based on their health at birth. The assessments are done at one minute after birth and again at five minutes. I would bet most people don't even know that this test exists unless their child was in the abnormal range like mine. I had a very difficult long labor. When Lauren was born, she had trouble breathing and it took her a while to pink up as they say. A former, former teacher of hers shared with me once at a parent teacher conference that Lauren liked to share in class that she was born purple. She loved it when I would tell her the story of her birth. I will never forget how scared I was as a brand new mom. I was so happy to have finally delivered Lauren and then my happiness quickly turned to fear. She underwent a spinal tap moments after birth because doctors feared she had meningitis. Thankfully they were wrong and she just had some extra fluid in her lungs. She would be fine with a short stay in the NICU, a little oxygen and some antibiotics. Lauren was a fighter back then and I was counting on her to be a fighter now. I remember being afraid to see Lauren in the NICU. A friend of mine wheeled me in to see her because my legs were still numb from the epidural. Next to the other babies, Lauren looked so big. Most of the other babies in the NICU were premature. She had a clear cake plate looking thing over her head that was supplying oxygen. Her blonde curls were still wet from delivery. She was finally all pink and soft and warm. I reached my hand into the bassinet and she wrapped her sweet little hand around my index finger. I never felt a love so strong in my life. I had no idea that my heart was even capable of this kind of love. I made a promise to God in that very instant that I would devote my whole life to this beautiful baby girl. Now I stood here in the lobby silently pleading with God to please not take my baby away from me. I needed these doctors to be wrong, just like they were when she was born. Inside the sterile box of an elevator, I knew there would be no turning back. I braced myself for what I would be seeing in just a few minutes. We were headed up to the eighth floor, my mouth suddenly dry and my legs beginning to buckle. But first we stopped on the second floor. The doors opened and a few seconds later they closed. There was not a soul in sight. Did someone change their mind? The charge nurse explained that Cedar sinai is a Jewish hospital and since it was after midnight, it was technically Saturday, the Sabbath, a day of rest and pushing an elevator button is considered work. What? I was not one to knock religion, especially one so old and deeply rooted in tradition like Catholicism, but seriously, you can't push a button. All I wanted was to get to my daughter, and now I had to torturously stop on each and every level until we reached the eighth floor. It would have been comical in a different situation. There I was with a nurse who had hair taller than my legs in an elevator with a door that would open and close a total of 15 times before I could reach my destination. Only it wasn't funny. Today would be a day without laughter. Today was my darkest day ever. Technically yesterday was my darkest day. I wasn't quite sure what today would be, but my best guess was that it wouldn't be good.
Little did I know that the coming days would make the dark, dreary month of April seem like I had been walking on sunshine. The darkness that would consume me, consume my next several weeks and months was something I could not have begun to fathom. And uh, if you're just joining us again, this is Colleen Murphy reading from her book, Murphy's Don't Quit. That was the first chapter. So, um, I mean, again, I've already read it, but I was feeling for you. And then what happens, spoiler alert, in the next pages, like I laughed, the sense of humor that you have, what a gift to be able to bring us into um, this, again, this situation that you would not have scripted, could not have scripted, and then the humor. So how important was that for you to make sure um, that you kept your sense of humor through all of this? And maybe people going through something right now listening to this could relate. Sure. So, I mean, that is, I mean, I think that was key. And that's why it took me so long to begin to write the book is because that's always been my style. Um, I guess I would probably compare it to like Irma Bombeck from the 70s. Um, and that's kind of how, you know, instead of finding the positive my whole life, I found, I found the funny, you know, and it's, that's my positive, you know, and there were funny things throughout, you know, our story in the very beginning, the first couple chapters, there was not a lot of funny parts. Um, but you know, there were funny parts that did happen, but it took me a while. It had to take me several years to take a step back and realize there were funny things. I just had to look for them and I wasn't prepared to look for them for quite a while. And, you know, to me, I think, you know, nobody wants to hear gloom and doom and I don't want to be a negative Nancy and Lauren didn't get where she was today by us being negative Nancy's. And, you know, there was a lot of crazy stuff, you know, that she went through as her brain was waking up and it was pretty funny, you know, in, um, you know, the brain is, is an amazing organ and she did some wild, wild things at the time. And I think, you know, to read about, you need to see the funny part because nobody wants to read a tragic story, but to live it, I think more importantly is you have to find, you know, humor in life. That's, you know, laughter is the best medicine and it's true. And I felt like I knew you reading this. So what, what a what a great, um, a fantastic gift that you have, I believe, to bring the drawer in or the read to draw the reader in. Uh, and I want to wrap this up, being respectful of time. Uh, but I want to give. Speaking of hope, uh, fast forward. Um, this video is one of my most favorite. Uh, let's see if I can find it. So what happened was through this whole journey. Lauren has proven doctors wrong. Mm -hmm. uh, rare to have this type of severe traumatic brain injury and to come back in a way um, that even has surprised doctors, relearning how to speak and all of this. And so I'm going to show she ends up part of the speaking engagements um, that she did with you, set us up again um, at, uh, Lin was it at Lindenwood, the commencement Fun -fun. speech? Oh, Fon Fon commencement speech. This, this, um, was a hard earned get and you were nervous coming into it, correct? Oh, for sure. You know, because she has um, a condition called aphasia, which is real common for people with strokes and it's, um, she has trouble with finding words. She has trouble understanding words. She has trouble reading and writing. So she can't read a speech. She can't memorize a speech because she has memory issues. Um, 
and I'm like, how in the heck are we going to pull this off? And, you know, if it, it, the hours we put into practicing, we just had to like go over it and go over it and we would tape it and then listen to it in the car and just immerse, you know, her brain in the speech 24 seven. And there were times where we would be practicing and I'd be like, does any of this sound familiar to you? You know, we've been practicing for four weeks, but, you know, somehow she rose to the the occasion and, and pulled it off and, you know, it wasn't perfect. Um, but, you know, the, the professor that recommended us to do commencement, she gave me some great advice where she said, you know, if it's perfect, it's not inspirational. And I needed to hear that, you know, because I wanted, you know, we, you know, I'm the, you know, forever stage mom and I wanted her to be perfect yeah. and she can't be perfect. And none of us can be perfect really, you know, but it's an extra year. For her. Yeah, because who so, else listening can relate to that? That's the whole point. That if it's perfect, it is not realistic. Our mm -hmm. lives are not perfect, but there's such beauty and authenticity and being genuine. So uh, let me show this quick clip. It's one minute and then we'll come back and wrap it up. Um, but so we had the first chapter um, that sets the tone for what you were up against. But let's go ahead and, and show a window into why hope is so much a part of the story. Obviously, most of you are not going to have a catastrophic injury to deal with like Lauren has. We hope nobody has a catastrophic injury to deal with. But you will meet some roadblocks and some detours. And we hope that you remember this day and remember these lessons that Lauren shared with you might make that road just a little bit smoother. So, Lauren, can we recap? Of course. Number one, show up. Two, find your cheerleader. Never give up. You got this, class of 2019. You got this. Thank you. Seriously, uh, I've seen that several times. You've seen it a million times more. Mm -hmm. And goosebumps. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was pretty cool. Yeah. So I want to thank you so much again for, for sharing, giving us a window into this journey and for giving us hope. And uh, we'll come back next Friday and, uh, and we'll have Colleen read chapter two. And we're hoping that you'll follow along on this journey with us. We'll do it at eight o'clock central, nine o'clock Eastern on Friday here on the Good Stuff family page. Again, thank you, Colleen. I'm so grateful thank for you. you. Thank you. Okay. God bless you. Don't forget y'all. Uh, this is what we say. Every time we come to you, we try to see the good in others and be the good for them. Your own story matters. God bless. You are good, good, good. This has been a Grassroots Good Stuff family production. If you found inspiration here, subscribe and share if you would, please. And we have big love and gratitude for our social media director. She is Danielle Folk, and she is consistently going above and beyond. Follow her at Farmhouse Storyteller. 
Hunter Hogan is our editor extraordinaire who connects all the best parts together. TheGoodStuffFamily.com is where you'll find our sponsors and advertisers who we are so grateful for for making so much of what we do possible. And find links on how you or your business could make a good stuff story of the future possible. See the good, be the good. That's what we do. How about you? On your mark, get set, let's go. Let's go.